I'm Elizabeth Esty for the Emergency Medical Minute. Welcome to another edition of the COVID-19 Digest, the podcast where we give you the numbers and sort through the most pertinent research on COVID. It's April 22nd, and looking at the Johns Hopkins coronavirus dashboard today, it looks like there are 2.6 million total confirmed COVID-19 cases across the globe, with 840,000 and some COVID cases in the United States. Total deaths across the globe are now stand at 183,120. In the United States, 47,750 people have died of COVID, 14,000 of those in New York, 4,700 and so in New Jersey. Colorado luckily is not among those top states, but we have, as of today, lost more than 500 people to COVID-19. And uh, New York City is now the fifth, essentially, they're treating it as a country, and it's the fifth in the world now for deaths. Colorado today has reported more than 500 patients dying of COVID. A newish and interesting feature of the Hopkins dashboard is that you can now look at the total number of tests conducted in the U.S. as well as the number of tests conducted in every state. There's been increasing attention to evidence that suggests that many patients with COVID have neurologic symptoms and that some patients may even be presenting with neurologic manifestations of the disease. We all know that most COVID patients have a cough, respiratory distress, and while clinicians often speak about how similar the presentations of patients with respiratory COVID are, it's worth looking at the possibility that COVID may have atypical presentations as well. Most COVID patients have normal neuro exams, accepting that high rate of anosmia, which we've discussed before, and which I will circle back to later on in this episode. What we don't know is if patients with atypical neurologic presentations are simply the unlucky few. They had a stroke or a seizure or trigeminal myalgia or whatever, and the phenomenal bad luck of also getting COVID. Many, of course, particularly of the older, sicker patients with COVID, will develop neurologic findings, mostly nonspecific findings, as a consequence of being really sick. They're hypoxic, intubated, and they're having the metabolic, hematologic, immunologic, you name it, derangements of being gravely ill. We've talked about cytokine storms, that cascade of immune chemicals that the body releases as it tries, sometimes trying too hard, to fight off a virus. Sick ICU patients are often encephalopathic. They're weak, they're headachy. These nonspecific symptoms like headache, fatigue, muscle weakness are what people with milder COVID or really people with any viral illness are familiar with. These are not what neurologists would consider primary neurologic presentations. Neurologists are accustomed to seeing severely ill patients in the ICU develop encephalopathy, critical illness myopathy, neuropathies. Most cases of COVID-19-related neurologic complications appear to fall into this category. Neurologists do feel more confident in calling a disease a primary neurologic disease when they have focal signs, that is, things like weakness on one side, one body part affected, a cranial nerve that's not working properly. Without these, it can be difficult to determine what is a disease where neurologic tissue is the primary target versus one where, say, systemic circulation of various immune system chemicals is the culprit. Neurologists, of course, also care about whether symptoms indicate disease of the central nervous system, that is, you know, the brain, the spinal cord, uh, or the peripheral nervous system, or at that juncture between the nerve and a muscle. In other words, are the neurologic symptoms that we're hearing more and more about with COVID immune-mediated neural injury, or are they direct viral injury of nerves, or possibly a mixture of both? There is very good evidence that coronaviruses can infect all sorts of human cells, not just those in the respiratory tract. 
few weeks ago, we discussed ACE inhibitors and NSAIDs in SARS-CoV-2, and you may remember that the virus attaches to the ACE2 receptor, a receptor that's found in a wide range of human cells, cell surfaces. What are the chances the virus can infect a patient's brain cells, cranial nerves, peripheral nerves? They're pretty good, unfortunately. Human coronaviruses are now accepted to be neurotropic. That means they are drawn to nerves and potentially neurovirulent, though they typically only get so far as your upper respiratory tract. There are documented cases of encephalitis, acute flaccid paralysis, as well as other neurologic symptoms associated with other coronaviruses. And there's even been some speculation that human coronaviruses, not this one, but others, can cause long-term neurological effects and potentially develop into chronic neurologic diseases. Getting back to SARS-CoV-2, the virus that causes COVID, a report in the Journal of Medical Virology on February 27th had the ominous title, The Neuroinvasive Potential of SARS-CoV-2 May Play a Role in the Respiratory Failure of COVID-19 Patients. The authors here look at the possibility that part of the reason patients don't breathe effectively when they have bad COVID may be that the virus is infecting the brainstem, a key anatomic actor in respiratory drive. The authors point out that SARS-CoV's close relative SARS-CoV-1, which brought us SARS, was found to heavily infect the brain and brain stems of both lab animals and humans. This, by the way, is SARS-CoV-1 inside neurons, not just floating around in the cerebrospinal fluid. All the other related coronaviruses, MERS and several I'd never heard of, like mouse hepatitis virus and porcine hemagglutinating encephalomyelitis coronavirus, have the same capacity. Put a little MERS in a mouse nose and it goes straight to the brain. It doesn't even touch the mouse lungs. The authors speculate that with both MERS and SARS-CoV-1, when given intranasally, the virus may enter the brain via the olfactory nerves and therefore rapidly spread to some specific brain areas, including the thalamus and the brainstem. They further explain that, quote, some coronaviruses have been demonstrated to spread via a synapse-connected route to the medullary cardiorespiratory center from the mechanoreceptors and chemoreceptors in the lung and lower respiratory respiratory airways. The virus creeps its way from the lung to the brainstem, skipping, and I don't know how. My guess is that the virus is probably using some of the natural host machinery of active transport of chemicals to take that virus along peripheral nerves back toward the central nervous system. Once the virus enters the central nervous system, it can cause inflammation, demyelination, as well as neurologic manifestations like seizures, encephalitis, or acute changes in your level of consciousness. The authors here don't make any hard claims. They just speculate that this may be partially responsible for the acute respiratory failure of patients with COVID-19. Here we've been looking at direct neuroinvasion, which likely occurs either by that backwards spread up the nervous system from peripheral to central, or possibly by a hematogenous route, that is spread through the blood, possibly by virus that infects a white cell, then the white cell travels and infects other parts of the body. I forgot to mention that some of that backwards axonal transport could be through not just the olfactory nerve, but the trigeminal nerve, glossopharyngeal nerve, the vagus nerves, other peripheral nerves. Nobody really knows. So these authors hypothesize that SARS-CoV-2 might enter the nervous system via that ACE2 receptor, which remembers in those nerve cells, glial cells, skeletal muscle cells, and other organs. 
some of the best evidence that SARS-CoV-2 can target the nervous system is that common finding of anosmia, that is the inability to smell. That could be the virus invading the olfactory nerve directly, but it could also just be immune-mediated due to antibodies or other more general immune system responses to infection. You know, I'm sure many of us have had the experience of having a cold and just not being able to smell for a while. It will be interesting to see if there are patients who lose their sense of smell or taste with COVID who just don't get it back or don't get it back in the same way. I have not heard reports on that yet. Early on in the pandemic, there was not a lot of attention being paid to neurologic symptoms. An article in the New England Journal in late February looked at a series of 1,099 patients in China and found that just 13% of them had a headache and didn't really mention much else in the way of neurologic symptoms. At that point, though, these researchers were just trying to wrap their heads around the disease. They were mostly interested in the fact that many patients presented without a fever and that many on their first appearance at the hospital had no radiographic findings. They were, of course, very interested in the fact that 5% of them went to the ICU, 2 and a bit percent ended up on a vent, and 1.4% died. In stark contrast, there's another study out of China that was published more recently, but looking at patients over a similar time frame. This was a study, a retrospective chart review by two neurologists who looked back at the charts of 126 patients. Of those 126, 59% had non-severe infection, 40-ish percent had severe infection, judging by their respiratory status. The researchers found that 36% of all these patients had neurologic manifestations. Not surprisingly, the severely ill were older and had more medical comorbidities. They found that these patients with more severe infection were more likely to have neurological manifestations. They also noted that about 6% of them had acute cerebrovascular diseases, 15% had impaired levels of consciousness, and almost 20% had skeletal muscle injury. The authors conclude that patients with COVID-19 commonly have neurologic manifestations and suggest that clinicians who are seeing patients like these put severe COVID into their differential diagnosis. Another study of patients in the second half of January in Wuhan followed 221 seriously ill COVID patients and found that 11 of them had ischemic stroke, one had a brain bleed, and one had a venous sinus thrombosis. The authors conclude that cerebrovascular disease is not uncommon in COVID-19. Here, though, it's, it's important to note that these were older patients who came in with elevated risk factors for elevated risk for cerebrovascular disease. So whether this is evidence, any evidence of COVID-19 causing these diseases is not at all clear. On March 27th in Neurology Today, Italian neurologists urged neurologists in other nations to be alert for neurologic presentations of COVID. These clinicians described setting up their own eight-bed unit where patients, all with COVID, are being treated for stroke, delirium, seizures, and what looks to them like encephalitis. They report a dramatic increase in the number of vascular events, ischemic strokes, thrombosis alike, and uh, speculate that this increase may be due to the virus affecting coagulation mechanisms. A few weeks ago, there was a case report in radiology describing a 58-year-old patient who presented with a three-day history of fever, cough, muscle aches, symptoms consistent with COVID-19. At the emergency department, she showed signs of confusion, lethargy, and disorientation. Based on imaging, she was diagnosed with acute necrotizing encephalopathy, a rare complication of viral infections that until this case report had not been known to have occurred as a result of COVID-19 infection. ANE has been associated 
with intracranial cytokine storms in other viral infections, though. The authors of this case report urge clinicians to consider COVID when presented with a patient with ANE. Though, as with all of these single-patient case reports, until we have more experience with this disease, or possibly if there's an autopsy report for this patient, we just don't know. Continuing with the theme of is it a very unfortunate patient or a rare presentation of COVID? There's a case report published in Lancet Neurology recently of a patient, a woman in Wuhan, who developed Guillain-Barre and then COVID. The title says it all, I think. The title is Guillain-Barre Syndrome Associated with SARS-CoV-2, Causality or Coincidence? The authors go on to describe a 61-year-old woman who presents with acute weakness in both legs and severe fatigue that came on over the course of just a day. She had returned from travel to Wuhan on January 19th, but had no fever, cough, chest pain, or diarrhea. No fever, her oxygen stats were 99% on room air, her lung exam was normal, but her neuro exam was not. She had worsening, symmetric weakness, no reflexes, decreased pinprick sensation. She went on to have a pretty typical Guillain-Barre course, including all manner of nerve conduction tests, which are documented well in this paper. This poor woman went on to develop COVID seven days into her her Guillain-Barre. She spent a month in the hospital, but eventually recovered from both of her diseases. Guillain-Barre is usually a post-infectious phenomenon, but the authors point to two other studies in Zika patients that found para-infection of Guillain-Barre in about half of these Zika Guillain-Barre patients. So we don't know. Was this woman just particularly unlucky, or was she the first case report of para-infectious Guillain-Barre with COVID? Only time will tell. All of this just underscores that there's still so much about SARS-CoV-2 and COVID-19 that we just don't know. Only time will tell whether patients who recover from COVID have long-lasting neurologic sequelae. Time will tell if COVID patients do rarely present with Guillain-Barre or seizures or trigeminal neuralgia. Sadly, some of the answers to these questions will be better answered when we have more sick patients and more researchers doing retrospective studies and more pathology results and more autopsy findings. It's not surprising that in the chaos of this pandemic, there just aren't a lot of researchers out there doing EEGs on COVID patients. There simply haven't been the time or resources to study the neurologic aspects of SARS-CoV-2 infection. So many questions, so few answers. Thank you for listening, and special thanks to Tanisha Crosby Adipo and Mason Tuttle for their diligent research on this story. 